You just go up to the person and say, my name's Elaine. And, you know, I knew their name because they would be calling them during the overdose. And I'm, I've been filming with this fire department, um, doing a film about these three women. Welcome to Appalachian Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Elaine McMillian Sheldon is arguably the most successful filmmaker to come out of West Virginia. Her projects have taken her across the nation, telling stories that directly impact a wide range of communities. Her interactive documentary about McDowell County, West Virginia, entitled Hollow, won a Peabody Award and opened creative doors for her next project that ultimately turned into the Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning short documentary Heroin, and full-length Netflix original documentary, Recovery Boys. She discusses her filmmaking process and what it was like to create one of the most socially impactful pair of documentaries of all time. Enjoy. Well, I developed a passion for storytelling, not specifically filmmaking when I was little. Um, I don't know why. I just always was interested. I watched way too much TV TV as a kid um, and loved to read. And I wanted to be a writer when I was little. Um, And growing up in Logan County and in Abingdon, Virginia, I just was always really interested in what my local newspaper was doing. So I naturally was drawn to journalism when it came time to choose what to do for college. Mm -hmm. But then, um, and so my degrees in news editorial journalism, which is writing, but I graduated during the 2008 2009 recession and no one was hiring writers and newspapers were folding. And so I decided I need to learn new skills and multimedia was the word at the time being used um, that journalism students should learn multimedia. And so I kind of self-taught myself video and multimedia. And then I kind of haven't until this year wrote anything. Um, And so I started doing films and, uh, through the guides of journalism at first, and now I'm trying to do like more creative filmmaking. So, mm-hmm. where'd you go to high school? Uh, South Charleston High School here. And then you went to WVU, WVU. Western University, um, and I went to grad school. So I took off a year um, in between Western University. I went to DC. I worked at the Washington Post in their documentary video department as an intern. And they started laying off people. So the the entire department I was in, there was only like three people left in it by the end of the summer. And so I had to move back home to Charleston. I worked at the Charleston Daily Mail. And then I just started applying for grad schools because I had no clue how to transition from journalism and writing to documentary film. I had no background in it. Anything I knew, I just taught myself. And my only goal was to get a full ride to grad school. So I worked on the weekends and during my lunch breaks, um, going to the archives at the Daily Mail, starting to make my first film, which was about um, bikers who had been brutalized by the state police in the 80s. So I made that film, and that film essentially helped me get into grad school. Mm-hmm. I applied to four different grad schools knowing I needed to learn more. And I said, I'll go to anyone that gives me money. And Emerson College gave me a full ride. And so that was sort of my ticket out to learn 
documentary more formally because I really didn't know what to do. No one was hiring. It was just a dead market. So I was really lucky to get a full ride to a place I would have never be able to afford. And then from there, I learned or I met people that helped me find my way. Like everybody I made hollow with my interactive documentary in 2013, they all went through that program. You know, none of that would have been possible without collaboration of all those people. So it opened, I don't know that grad school is necessarily the key to things, but collaboration with people that were smarter than me and had different skills than me was certainly a huge benefit for taking that risk. Did you have anyone who mentored you, you know, uh, with the, the skill set of filmmaking, like your first film? Uh, how did you figure out, you know, what program to edit in or, you know, what kind of camera to buy or anything like that? Um. That's a really good question. I don't know how. I just bought a refurbished camera off of B&H. I just tried to find something cheap. I think I was just Googling. Uh, back then, I was uh, filming on mini DV tapes. Um, those are like tiny little cassette tapes. Um, and I still have that camera. And I think I bought it for, I don't know, a thousand bucks or something, which was a lot of money. Yeah. And I had gotten a scholarship, a $10,000 scholarship um, from the Scripps Howard Foundation. And I used it to buy that camera. And... Um, my mentors were largely still in writing, but storytellers. So John Temple, who works at Western University as a journalism professor, he's still a mentor today. He does long form journalism. So he wrote a book called American Pain. Um, he just, which was about the opioid uh, crisis through the lens of um, these guys who were starting this massive pill mill in Florida. He taught me investigative reporting. He taught me how to like find characters for your stories. And still to this day, like he's the one who brought me the idea for Recovery Boys, which is the feature documentary I did a couple of years ago. And then my other mentor was George Esper, who was a journalist during the Vietnam War. He was the AP Associated Press Bureau Chief. And so like those people pushed me to they told me not really they told me not to care about form. Like you want to be a filmmaker, you want to be a writer, just like learn how to understand story and storytelling. And then whatever it is that outlet that ends up taking it, that's great. But like, don't, don't get so committed to just being a filmmaker, I think was always their advice. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I tell Seth, I try to tell people, you know, the story is what matters the most. You know, there's award-winning films shot on iPhones and, you know, I get sucked into the gear world like Curran does. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun to think about, but yeah, in the end story matters. So your first big project, would you say it was hollow or would you, was it before that? I would say that's the first project that I would want anyone to see. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd say everything free hollow was big for me. Like it took those doing those projects that now are kind of embarrassing to watch to where I got to a point where I could make something like hollow, like I said, with a bunch of talented people that helped me make it but to where it was for public consumption. I feel like I made a lot of really bad stuff from, I don't know, 2007 to until 2012 when I started making that. So right. like five years of bad stuff before I made something that sh- should have been seen. Right. That's <laughs> part of the fun. Well, like, cause I've made so many terrible projects, you know, but I still like to look back on it and remember yeah. like the learning process that went into it. And there's um, some things you look back on, you're like, Oh, I, that was actually kind of smart that I did it that way. I did it that way because I didn't know any better. But actually, like sometimes I think there's a point and I worried about this with grad school. I didn't want to lose the scrappiness of what I liked about journalism and filmmaking and storytelling. The fact that I could make a, you know, feature doc about these bikers on my lunch break and on the weekends. I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to like so much of this 
professionalism of the documentary world, you just, you lose the human side of it and the messiness and the scrappiness of it. And I didn't want to lose that in grad school. So how many hours were you putting in? Like you do your day job and then you'd work on your passion projects. Yeah. I mean, I was working full time for nothing at the Daily Mail. I think my, I was being paid, I had a degree, but I was being paid $350 a week. I mean, I was making nothing. I was living with my parents. Um, that was a that was a really challenging time for me because I had basically since I was 10 years old had been trying really hard to like be the best in my class, knew exactly what I wanted to do, went after journalism school, tried really hard at WVU, like got on the president's list, was doing like the best I could do. And I graduated and the bottom fell out of the entire economy. I had nothing to do with anything I could do or anyone could help me do. And so I was like, um, I'm just glad that instead of giving up on storytelling, because I couldn't do it through writing, that I found filmmaking because it really did sort of save me from, I don't know, choosing something boring. Like I have no clue what I'd be doing right now if I had given up at that time when it was really hard, if I didn't have parents to fall back on too. Right. Yeah. So what's the difference between the way you made films then and the way you make films now? Like I imagine you wore a lot more hats back then or, you know, was it a process of giving up a lot of that responsibility and trust in people? Like uh, yeah. how did that work? Well, I still am not good at doing that giving up responsibility um, because I'd really, I haven't yet had a project that I haven't, other than working with my husband, Curran, who shoots, we shoot a lot together and he'll shoot sometimes. I mean, I kind of still do everything. Um, I think the difference might be I'm a bit more cautious, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing. Curran and I were talking about this yesterday. I think when you're 23 or 24, like when I went to McDowell and I just lived there for five months, I, I didn't know anyone. I grew up, yeah, I grew up near there, but I was just sort of hoping that people would be on board for being a part of this project. And I did my best, but I almost like the naivete of all that made the project what it was because I really didn't have any um, ego about it. I was just like, this is going to be good. Like this is going to be a fun community project. We're going to get young people involved. We're going to get elderly people involved. It's going to be awesome. Whereas now... I feel like I hesitate to take on projects that are super risky because you have bills to pay and um, things change. So I don't know. It's a lot of that. Like I'd imagine with national exposure comes national criticism. Like, does it make you nervous to, I don't know, for me, like when I approach a documentary, I'm always thinking like, how is this going to make them feel watching this? Mm -hmm. And I think, that's important, but also I think it it sacrifices a lot of what you could have done. Is 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 are you cautious in that way, or is it more of like, no, I like you know this is what I do for a living, and I got to make sure that this is something special instead of taking risks yeah. on something that you know may turn out to be nothing. Yeah, well, I, I'm definitely more cautious of using people's time for these types of things. Um, I don't like to begin shoots without knowing what my end product's going to be because I realize I'm asking for people's time. I'm asking for them to let me follow them around for months, years. And so I really like to know what I'm doing before I enter it. So that's part of the cautiousness. I'm trying to be considerate of people's time. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think there's a little bit of um, 
I'm always curious how long people will be interested in hearing what I care about from this region. Like, I would just wonder if there's a time in which people will just be like, okay, that's enough. Like, we don't need to hear any more about Appalachia. Like, move on. Like, And I think that might be maybe some insecurity that I have that's not actually real. Because sto- sto- a good story is a good story. doesn't matter if they're in Missouri, Texas, or West Virginia. Who cares? Like, if it's a good universal story that tells us something about who we are. It doesn't matter where they are. So I think there's a little bit of Appalachian insecurity within me that makes me hesitate to jump on things that, you know, there's stories I've been sitting on for years that I would love to tell um, that I'm just afraid, like, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. Right. Um, but if it's what you care about, what's it matter? Yeah. And and I got to, I'm going to brag about you for about five minutes here because, you know, it is important that you keep doing that stuff because I know like, a lot of things I do, I'm like, well, I'm going to do that again, or I'm going to do this again. Like nobody really, you know, m- maybe nobody cares, but they really do because you're one of the few storytellers in this region that is actually creating exponential change. Like after you made Hollow, in my opinion, it's one of the sole reasons that McDowell County got so much national exposure and there and brought parts unknown in there, and they made such a good story that we really deserved. And, you know, I think it's important to have, you know, like people like you and Kern don't come around too, too often. So, you know, I just want you to know, like, we appreciate so much, you know, like I told you, you guys inspired me to do what I'm doing. So I would have never met you if you didn't do hollow. Right. So, you know, it's good to hear. I really get that, but you know, uh, it it is important. Um, And and we can kind of talk about that a little bit. So, Tell everyone what Hollow is for someone who may not have watched it. Yeah. Well, if you want to see it, it's hollowdocumentary.com. And it's a interactive website. I think it's six, maybe five chapters um, where each is themed around a different subject. Interactive documentary just means you choose your own adventure through the film. So there's 30 different people featured in the documentary from issues of uh, the arts and culture to environment to health to education. And you just scroll through this website and you can click play on certain um, video content and certain video content is made by the community. Um, So, yeah, it was kind of it was created in this age in which interactive documentaries were having a moment and you don't see a lot of them anymore because we've moved to mobile devices and it's not a mobile friendly website. Um, but yeah, it was community driven. We had monthly meetings at Mount View high school where people would create content. They bring in their own photos to scan. They'd write stories. Like the, the whole thing is I think three and a half hours. If you watch and click everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes back to, you know, McDowell County, Still to this day, like there is, there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot of positivity in terms of, except with the Trump, like 2020 or 2016 elections, like people were still doing their tropes and treating, treating people like sound bites. But mm-hmm. pre to that, I do feel like there was a lot of momentum and good things. And it's like just a matter of shining light on some positive things. And that was one of the things from the get go with hollow is like, this isn't going to be a beat down of McDowell County. This is supposed to be for the county of the county, like be a part of this. And it wasn't so much about me, you know, putting my opinions about this place. It was supposed to be like a quilt that the community helps put together. Um, And so that was the idea of that project. And I think a lot of people, even that will never set foot in McDowell County, got a sense of that place in a different way. That was kind of just a really cool, there was an international audience for it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I just talked to Darren Blankenship, who he is a tattoo artist in Hollow. And he said after the um, thing came, after Hollow came out, he was getting all kinds of messages. People were sending him like cards in the mail, and um, they sent him like a Ninja Turtles collector collector things. He mentions the Ninja Turtles in his thing in his uh, portrait. Anyway, That's and awesome. Linda has had a lot of. People visit her based on Hollow, um, Linda McKinney from the bank, your mother-in-law. National. Yes. They, you got, you're the, you're one of the reasons we got a new roof on the food bank because part of that, and we, uh, Micro and his crew came down, you know, Morgan Fallon heard of you through Hollow, right? He watched that documentary and always knew he wanted to do a Parts Unknown episode there and got you to, to uh, produce that. But um yeah. But so, it's not really about me. It's about the fact that Linda and Bob are open. Like you gotta you gotta have the one thing about documentary is I think documentary it's you it's a relationship you have to build. And Linda and Bob were so open to me so early on and became like family to me while I was down there. And it was that relationship and their openness that led to all those things, you know? And I think we underestimate oftentimes people in rural places or Appalachia, blah, blah, blah. There's certain types of people they are scared of outsiders, all these stupid tropes we hear over and over. And it's like, it's just not true. And um, if Hollow did anything, I hope it was bust up, bust open those myths. Right. Yeah. Then, and we kind of talk about that too. Did you notice like, you know, in my experience, which a lot of people in McDowell know me now, they know I run around with the camera all the time, but people are a little bit shy when they, see cameras come out because they're used to negativity. So did you see that at all kind of when you started or? Yeah. I just smile at people and like I put the camera down and I tell them what I'm doing. Um, I sometimes, I mean, I get to kind of get that everywhere though. I was filming in Vermont a lot this past year and people would pull up and be like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, I'm just, the sun, the sunrise is gorgeous. Have you seen it? You know, just like being like a human with them. Like, look how gorgeous this field is right now. It's, you know, 530 in the morning. Look at the sunrise. Like, I'm, I'm just getting the shot because I'm photographing how beautiful this is, which is the truth. And so I think like so many media makers are actually out not trying to do good, that their reaction when they get confronted by someone is one of guilt because they have <laughs> intentions. <laughs> right. Um, and if you're a just human being out there doing what you do and what I do. It's like, I'm not trying to do anything wrong. So I would be a human to you. But yes, there's a lot of skepticism because I think it's ultimately that camera is a signal of like, not their image being stolen, but it is, it's like kind of out of their control. Right. So like how they look or are portrayed, is like not really based on what they get to control. It's up to you. And if you're a person that doesn't have great intentions, like they have a good reason not to trust you. Right. Well, the early days of, you know, Appalachia being photographed with what was it, FDR or, or uh, I know you can tell me, but LBJ, LBJ, that's what it is. Okay, yeah, just always that trope, like you mentioned, you know, people just being cautious, and and I find like, yeah, once you start having a conversation with them, they do open up, and then you, you know, well, me, I start feeling that responsibility, like, okay, you know, how am I going to uh, show my appreciation? Like, what is this story going to be? Am I going to show them showing this moment that could appear negative, but would help my story or do I not? You know, like I've left out things that probably could have ultimately made a better piece overall. Now, better for what I was trying to do? I don't know. But, you know, I, I, having that battle in my mind, I, I kind of 
I kind of like it, but I appreciate it more every day because I just know, you know, I know I get frustrated when I hear people talk about this region and I know you do too. And, um, which kind of leads me to your opioid crisis journey. Before I leave hollow, how many hours did you have? Did you ever count up how many hours? No, I have no clue. I really don't know. It was shot in HD because there was no 4K back then. And we had like 10 terabytes of footage of HD footage. So it was a ton. 10 terabytes. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. It was a lot. I mean, I think I interviewed just alone, interviewed over 75 people. Mm-hmm. I do think though you're bringing up a good point. And unfortunately, what the market wants is not always what we should do that helps us sleep at night. Like as media makers, we have to make the decision of whether we're going to stand and have some um, ethics about what we're doing or whether we're going to serve the market, which wants very uh, one-dimensional views of one another. That's that's what is happening right now. And I think that's what's happened for a long time. I don't think that's new. I don't think that it's new that we don't want to take the time to get to know one another. And so that's why it's so important that we do resist those things. It's not It's not a matter of wearing rose-colored glasses. I mean, there's some really tough things acknowledged in Hollow. You know, we acknowledge about the fact that sewage goes straight to the streams. and But we do it in a way that shows like, Here's, a, here's an issue, but here's a problem, or here's a person that's trying to change that issue, or here's, you know, here's a person that sees the beauty within this destruction and is like trying to do something for the future. So there's a way of framing things, which is what we wanted to do with heroin, with the three women. It's like, you know, it's a very different, you're making a film about opioids in Huntington, you typically just see spoons and needles and um, just just emergencies and you don't really see the people behind them and the reasons why they do what they do and like the mundane moments of their life that isn't all emergency and their camaraderie with the people that are working with them in their community so the goal of heroin was to show the resilience of those women you know within this destructive addiction landscape that we all are facing but we didn't need more spoons and needles. We got plenty of that. The BBC, CNN, everybody's going to provide all the spoons and needles footage you want of, you know, a person. And and I, we were trying to say, like, yes, there's some challenges and we're not sugarcoating those. But here's some women that every day get up and do what they do to make a difference. And I think by ignoring those people exist which is what a largely a lot of media does is they paint everyone as a victim. And by ignoring that they're like active agents doing something within their community, you're, you're kind of erasing any uh, ability to have hope and not just hope on a national scale, but locally, because we get beat down by those portrayals. Like we start believing them ourselves once you're told them enough. And so it's hard. Um, you know, there's a there's a more like um, attractive and sellable story, and then there's the truth, which can be really can be really painful. And then there's publicity and PR, and it's like trying to hit the truth is, I think, the sweet spot. Um, and you have to be honest with the people you're filming. It's like not all this is going to be good. Like, it's going to be real, though. I can promise you it's going to be real, which is, I think, in the best service to your story. Yeah. And you definitely do that. But you can tell, like, what I love about what you all make is you show, you give equal representation to everybody. Like, with heroin, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I took off, other than it being amazing, is 
you know, first off, the name is just so perfect. It's Curran. It's not me. I'm terrible at names. Oh, Curran, come up with a name? <laughs> yeah. Well, you have these three women, and it shows three different aspects in the same town of how they're battling this situation. And, you know, yeah, there's all kinds of bad things going on. You know, you you witnessed people overdose. You know, you witnessed the aftermath of that. But at the same time, you know, I think one reason it took off was you showing the will of these women and what they're doing to battle that, especially Jan seeing that every day, uh, pretty much, and her taking off, you know, the way she has just seeing the national response from that. You know, do you think that's part of it? Like people were just ready, like, OK, I've seen the negative opioid piece. I've seen, you know, show me something else that I can root for, that I can get behind. Yeah, I think everybody wants a cheerleader and, you know, the, these women are advocates for the people on the ground and they're easy to get behind um i i think a a good way to figure out where the line of representation of like something that's perceived as negative or positive because i remember talking to jan like i really don't want to film these overdoses like i feel so conflicted by it like first of all i'm filming it and the person being filmed doesn't even know they're being filmed until they wake up and then i have to have that conversation with them and then what if they tell me I'm a horrible person because I feel like one for doing this or what if they agree but then regret it or what if they agree but for wrong intentions or what if they die there's you know and she just was like look like this is my life every day if you don't show it you're not showing our lives um then you came here to show our reality and this is absolutely a part of it and you can do it in a responsible way so she was um I don't know really helped us work through the how we would approach those situations, which was shooting them and then having a conversation with the person afterwards, who we are, what we plan to do with it, how it will be used, why it's important, why it's it's relevant. Um, And those are awful hard conversations to be had, but it's your responsibility as a storyteller. How how do you approach those? You just go up to the person and say, my name's Elaine. And, you know, I knew their name because they would be calling them during the overdose. And, I'm, I've been filming with this fire department, um, doing a film about these three women in the community. This woman just saved your life. She's, you know, the main person we've been following for a year. This is a, this is not a film that's looking to, you know, put your, you know, this particular moment out in the spotlight necessarily. It's about the change makers, the people that are trying to help and. It's funded by the Center for Investigative Reporting. I tell them everything I knew at the time. And and the issue with all that was when we first started filming, we had no money. And it was just, I'm Elaine, and here we are, and I hope to do something positive with this. And then when we came back, it was like, well, we got some funding from the Center for Investigative Reporting, which is a reputable journalism outlet. But then when, once we were in post-production, that's when Netflix came on board. And that really worried me because, you know, none of those people – even the women uh, signed up for such exposure. I mean, Netflix is, it was the first film we ever had to do with Netflix and I was scared for that exposure. So I felt like that conversation had to be had with everyone. And so. I guess let's approach funding first. So you had, I imagine you cut together a trailer for, you know, when you initially started, did you file, did you find a grant or did you have a connection, you know, in your network that told you about some, some way to get funding? Like, how did you approach funding for the film? For heroin? Yeah. Um, so we went and shot, I think like seven days, um, with Jan 
And I don't think, yeah, we shot with the drug court. We shot with all the women actually, but some other people in Huntington too. And I'm pretty sure I just was on, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook or something. And there was an announcement from the Center for Investigative Reporting that was looking for uh, short films directed by women that featured women, like women making positive change. Mm -hmm. We had essentially wanted to make this film. Um, and so we applied with like a 10 minute sample of what we had filmed and a rough sketch of how many more days we wanted to shoot, we wanted to shoot 20 more days. And this is what we wanted to do with it. We thought it could be this length. And so, um, that's how it started. And they funded, they, they were given grants to five women filmmakers and I got one of them for that. Awesome. Um, so the first iteration originally it was going to be one project, right? Was it called yeah. Rescue Breath? Yeah. Yeah. Way back when. So when did you start to figure out like, this is two movies? Well, I think once you realized how much depth each one could have, if you let them have their own space, like Recovery Boys, which is the feature length one, 80 minute film or so. Once we realized that we should be following these guys for longer than six months in rehab, we should be following them for 18 months. So six months in rehab and 12 months afterwards. That was like the women in Huntington are their own thing. And also there's different levels and layers. And I think ultimately heroin's more successful in like the public perception than Recovery Boys because it is for people you can really get behind. Whereas Recovery Boys is a much more challenging piece. You know, it's about people that are in the grips of addiction. Um, but we had a different, you know, a contract with them too, essentially a verbal contract of like, we're not making a intervention show. This is not here to exploit you, but this is going to be hard. Like there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. We're hoping you guys are all successful and thank goodness all those guys are still alive and doing well today. Um, but like there was no guarantee. And so you had to have that conversation up front. Like we want to be around for over a year. Right. And, um, you know, ultimately about six guys agreed to it. There were probably about 10, 12 guys in the rehab at the time. That being said, and Recover Boys too, you know, what I love about it is you're not, the ending isn't expected. I'll just put it that way. Cause you're, you're seeing these guys and you, you know, our judgmental selves like, well, this one's going to, this is going to happen to this one. This is going to happen. You know, it's just a lot. It turns out a lot different than what you think would happen, which I think is, is awesome. But you know, it's also heartbreaking, obviously. Um, so when you, how did you find out about Netflix being like, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're going to take this on and we're going to, you know, dive in on this partnership. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think two ways I, in my early, earlier career days, I made a op doc for the New York times from some hollow content. It was called West Virginia still home and it's a seven minute film and it's cuts together. I don't know, like four or five people that are in hollow and we released it. Um, I met the New York times who was commissioning that, um, because I got funding through tribe. It's all funding thing. So Mm -hmm. hollow got funding from Tribeca film Institute. And then they do this sort of like speed dating thing for all the people that got funding to meet distributors and stuff. And in that speed dating, I met a guy named Jason from net or from New York times. And he commissioned a piece for hollow to run on the New York times on West Virginia day in 2013 ended up making like the front page of the New York times, because I think the New York times probably underestimated how excited West Virginians get for West Virginia day. And there's a lot of West Virginians outside of West Virginia that want something to share on West Virginia day. Um, and so that was that first relationship with Jason at the New York Times. And then I made a couple other op docs for him. Well, he ended up leaving and now he's at Netflix. 
So I'd already made work for him for super cheap and like on an extremely low budget and tight deadline. So he knew I could make work and deliver. So I had a good relationship with him. And then we applied to pitch at this thing called Good Pitch. It's a it's a, a funding organization where you publicly pitch your film and there's philanthropists in the audience who will stand up and say, I'll give you five grand. I'll give you this. Right. I'll, um, I'll provide a screening space. So we did that in New York and um, someone from Netflix was in the crowd and it wasn't Jason. It was another person. And they came up to us afterwards. They didn't say it publicly, but like, we want to see more material, send us more material. And so we did. And that was after a year of production. So we really didn't have any money the whole time we were making it. And it was an 18 month production. So that's how Netflix got on board. It was kind of a double. That's awesome. So it's not just, you know, you wake up and submit to this link online and then oh well there we go you know it was a whole networking process yeah um so that being said how important do you think networking is when being a documentary filmmaker unfortunately it's too important i wish it was less important because of where we live it's hard to network um you know there's not a formal documentary community here so our network is limited unless we leave and you know it's it's not uncommon. It's actually more common that my stuff, I apply for a lot and don't get grants all the time, like funding, all these things, because people hire their friends and they hire the people they know. Um, and so, yeah, it's important. And I would recommend any young filmmaker be a part of um, things like the IFP Spotlight on Documentaries. These are like specific programs that bring first-time filmmakers or young filmmakers together not even young, it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, filmmakers don't need a network to New York for these speed dating conversations because you can meet like 30 distributors in one day. And, you know, they may not buy that film, but my relationship with Jason was like a, I don't know, five-year relationship before Recovery Boys and Heroin. So, yeah, it all builds upon itself. You can't do it by yourself. So... Being a Netflix original now, can you do they submit it to several festivals or can you still submit it or are there guidelines to certain ones that you can submit to or how does that work? Yeah, so they control, so they own the film mm-hmm. after they make it an original um, and you sell your rights to the film. And in that process, they come up with a distrib- distribution plan and they choose where it will go um, or where they will apply for it to go. So... Um, yeah, it's kind of in their hands at that point. I mean, you get you get to give feedback, but ultimately they have they're a machine. They're Netflix. They have a publicity department, a PR person that you're assigned, and um, you know they set up interviews. I don't have anything to do with that. Like if there's a if there's a um, review of the film, and it was a Netflix film, that director had very little to do with that. That was the Netflix PR machine working, you know, and so it's. It's uh, eye-opening as an independent filmmaker to see how powerful um, a publicist can be, which is not something I've ever worked with before. You know, with Hollow, I did 80 screenings by myself. That meant getting in my car and driving to 80 different places all around Appalachia to get people to see it. And it was the most grassroots, like, way. And it was so different than these two films. Which you want a Peabody for. Um, but you you worked your butt off making sure people saw that. Like, I don't think a lot of people realize, like you mentioned 80 screenings. I mean, you were, you set up a screening in Martha Moore park, just a projector and a sheet, yeah. you know, 
<laughs> for, for the town. So yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize how much work you got to put into to getting someone to watch your stuff, yeah. you know, in the early days. Yeah. And I still like that. I mean, I actually, there's a part of me that I'm really grateful for the experience of working with Netflix, but there's a part of me that was kind of sad about the loss of ownership because you can't just roll up and put a sheet up and a projector when somebody else owns your film at that point. Was it scary signing the contract? Yeah. Like, okay, I officially don't own this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's scary because these are people you've built trust with and like, you don't know what that trailer is going to look like. Yeah. You get to give feedback, but you may see version three, what a version one and two of the trailer look like or the poster. Like these things are, these are people you know and you've gotten to know for two years or however long you've built trust for. And then it's kind of in this machine's hands to make it marketable. Mm -hmm. And I was really worried. Like when Recovery Boys was coming out, you know, one of our guys was on the run and here's a billboard of him in LA. And it's like, what do you do? What's the ethical quandaries of something like that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, I mean, he's fine. There's, you know, there's nothing to say about that. But still, it like keeps me up at night. Right. It worries me. I mean, ultimately, all I have a good relationship with all the guys. Three of them I talk to a ton and then not a ton, but more than one of them. And then the founder of the rehab and the rehab I'm still close to. So I learned about anything that comes up. And ultimately, I think it's been really good for them. They have it featured on their website. So I don't think there's any bad that came out of it. But your fear is like people are cruel on the Internet. Like what if people find these guys on Facebook and say things that depress them that then lead them to using like you know right. your your head goes Definitely. there because mm -hmm. this is a vulnerable situation did you uh, did you get any blowback from it i wish you don't have to be specific but you know did yeah i think people are just like i mean there's so many there's so many everyone has an opinion and everyone has a criticism about anything you're going to make and so there's just some people that were straight up classist and we're like what do i care if these poor Trump voting, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah. you don't even know who these guys are. Mm -hmm. Like, did you watch the film? You know, so it, I don't feel like the criticism was coming from people who actually tried to get to know these people. Right. Well, we know who didn't criticize it, which was the Academy when you got nominated for an Oscar. For heroin, um, yep. For heroin. How did that, how, how did that happen? <laughs> so it's like a, it's a weird, it was a weird thing to see. I learned a lot. Um, so the way it works is the Academy has basically four steps. So in order to be, there's four steps, qualified, shortlisted, and nominated. So to get qualified, you have to premiere at a film festival. Um, that's an Academy Award qualifying festival and win, win one of their awards. Or you have to do a week-long screening in New York and L.A., so a bi-coastal screening. Most film, most films go through the festivals and try to win awards. And then some other films, if they haven't won an award, will buy out a theater for a week in New York and L.A., typically smaller theaters that don't cost a lot, to not to get them qualified for the Academy. So the, the qualification is like 100 films or something. And then from there, I'm pretty sure from there, the Academy votes on the shortlist, which is like 15 films or something. So... Once you're shortlisted, that's when like the campaigning starts. And I don't know how many Academy voters there are, but there's a lot. Um, and you're trying to get them to see your film. You're trying to get them to vote for your film. You're trying to get them to host screenings of your film to get the other Academy members. It's kind of a really gross process of like 
inside baseball I didn't know anything about. I just kind of followed people's lead and did what they told me to do. Um, and then if you go from shortlist to nominee, that's when you really start campaigning. And that's when like Rashida Jones hosted a screening of heroin and like really weird stuff happened. Right. Um, like <laughs> meeting Meryl Streep and like these ridiculous, like, wow, how did I go from like my dingy apartment in Charleston to like this room right now? It didn't make any sense to me. So um, it's a very weird world that's got people that are paid to get you to win. Mm hmm. Essentially. So when you're in that room with all the nominees and you met Meryl Streep, like, did you absorb the situation or were you kind of just like, what's going on? I yeah. thought it was funny. I mean, I think it's, I was so excited to get the three women from the film with me on the red carpet. Yeah. Yeah. That was so awesome. I knew that they would just have a blast with this and they did. And it was a lot of fun. And my mom and Curran's mom, they both came as well. And so it was just fun. I mean, I, I was of course hopeful we would win. Why not? Like you would want to win, but it was all just so weird and new that I wasn't infatuated with any of it. Like there may have been a moment where it was like, Ooh, like, should I do something different with my life? And I was like, no, this is silly. This is so fleeting. Um, it was just weird and fun and I'm grateful for it. Cause I feel like it was so eye opening. Right. Even watching the golden globes last night for just a half second when I watched him, you kind of like once you've been in a room, that same room was where our Oscars luncheon was, where the Golden Globes were last night. And that's where I met Meryl Streep and all. And I, you kind of see the cracks and everything. You're like, oh, you know, that room wasn't that big. It was kind of small, and a little badly lit, but on television, it looks awesome, you know? Right, yeah. So, like, you kind of see like the cracks of things that you like, none of it seems so glittery. Right. Looking up close and personal, they're all wearing a ton of makeup and have a lot of plastic surgery and they look really weird. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I should just go home. <laughs> yeah. Is it like it, the saying of, you know, don't meet your heroes? Is that true in <laughs> I any guess aspect? So. I guess that would, that would, I mean, no one was unkind. I don't have any like bad experiences. That's was, good. Yeah. It was just. It seems like I remember seeing a guy that had like a cutout. Yeah. Of, it yeah, was yeah, funny. took a cutout to the dinner. Of, um, that was JR who had made a film with, um, Agnes Sparta, who's a French filmmaker. And she couldn't come to the luncheon, so oh. he had a cut out of her. Yeah, he was great. That's funny. Yeah. How how amazing, though. So, um, you know, obviously you said you'd like to win, but even still, just the experience. Did you see a spike in, let's just say, inquiries after this all happened for work? Oh, well, I saw a spike. I'll say first, I saw a spike in community screenings after this happened. And to this day, like today, I've gotten three community screening requests for heroin. Like the film has way longer legs and reach since that because, I mean, it just put it on people's radar. So that is amazing because there's communities all over. Like today I got a um, request from a Native American reservation in California that wants to show it and like all over. And so I'm really grateful for that. A spike in work. I saw, um, yeah, I mean, I think you get offers that are kind of predictable after things like that, like celebrity films. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to do any of those. So oh, yeah. my life is well, largely like a unchanged. celebrity documentary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what they, I think maybe, I don't know, that's someone's goal, like to get a film that's Academy Award nominated or winning. And then you make like films about high profile people, which it's fine if that's your goal. I just don't have any interest in that. You just want to, well, it's like we'll say real people. people. Yeah. Well, not real people. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're real in their own way. But, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. 
So, um, after, after all the, the aftermath of this, obviously, you know, the things that I love about documentary filmmaking is the change that you can create with it. What did you see in West Virginia specifically, you know, uh, that West Virginia did because of, I mean, we'll say because of your film, because it kind of was, it raised awareness and it got people talking. What was that? That mansion got so many millions of funding for the city of Huntington for naloxone. Yeah. There was money. It's hard to track change, but Essentially, I mean, there was money and there was Jan um, has been able to reach so many more people um, with her message of like, let's treat human or people suffering as humans. She was she got named on a time 100 most influential people. She gave a TED talk, like a real TED talk. Um, Lots of cool things. I mean, Nisha has been able to I think she got it. I don't know if she bought it. She got it donated right after the film, a, a building to do a ministry directly to the women. There's been a lot of things in the state that I think it's just helped open up a difficult conversation. So it's really hard to measure. But I think our opinions, a lot of people's opinions about naloxone has widened a bit. And naloxone's the opioid rever- reversal drug that you give someone who's having an overdose. Um, it's hard to say. I think there's a pride generally. Like I think many West Virginians were just proud to see those three women on the red carpet because they they're the real deal. Like these women are the boots on the ground in Huntington, which Huntington does not get a good reputation for a lot of things. And like, here's these three women, these really positive role models. So are you keeping up with the statistics like every year or? Yeah. Overdose numbers have gone down in Huntington. Um, but I think meth usage is on the rise. So that has something to do with it. Um, I don't think Jan, I mean, Jan has told me all the good things that have come from the film and, um, and, and Nisha. I mean, they all feel like things have happened. Things have moved things. They've sort of won people over in this battle, um, because of it, but it's really hard to measure. Right. After you're finished filming, uh, do you know how many hours you put on the drive? How do you even measure hours? I mean, the only, the only way I can figure like with cornered, I did 70 plus. And I literally just had a timeline and I was so like you put it all in measuring all the timelines put together. I've never done you know, that. I would love like to do average. that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it would be a good thing to do because you're kind of like, man, now, because I did that before I started editing and it just, uh, I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Well, we shot just under 40 days over the course of a year. Do you watch everything? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I'm Well, it depends. If I just shot it and I pull things, I know exactly what I want to pull from that day. But if I haven't, if I shot it three months ago and now I'm editing, I kind of have to watch it to remember what we shot. Right. And I probably, I'll admit, I didn't watch everything. For one, was time. Two, I was like, well, if it's something I remember, obviously it impacted me. So, you know, but my memory is deteriorating after all these projects. It's just, it's getting worse and worse. I got to make lists, detailed lists, lists for those lists, you know. I keep a media log every day. What happened, what was said that, stuck with me and I try to do that within a day of shooting I try not to let that go past a day because you remember things immediately like after you're done shooting you're like oh that was such a good moment you know when you're debriefing and charging your batteries like, oh it was great when she said that and what kind of format do you do you have a format Excel for it document or? Oh, yeah. and it's just the date date and the name of the folder and like here's the here's on file zero zero blah 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 this is said this is her going to the scene this is um you know, this is drug court scene, whatever. Like I'm, it's, 
it's pretty specific um, because I need to refer to, I need to be able to keyword search it. So I try to like do things. I always give someone a name. It's like Jan, Nisha, Patricia. I wouldn't like not name it because I wouldn't know what's going on. It's pretty detailed. Right. Like a report of the day. You know, after going through all this, what did your outlook of the opioid crisis obviously change? How did it change, you know, after witnessing all everything that you all did? I think I have a much better understanding of recovery in the sense of like it's not a straight path and it's much more complicated and I hope that we can I don't know see the thing the things that did and didn't work for the guys in recovery boys or the things that do and don't work for the women that are trying to help people in recovery hope we can learn from those things I guess my I'm less concerned about people I was so concerned about like the number of beds, like people aren't getting help and we need more treatment. I actually feel like there's quite a bit of treatment now in the state. I mean, there could always be more. We could always use more beds and we could always use more affordable treatment. Absolutely. But I feel like now my concern is around kids and um, where we're leaving kids in this situation because we've been so focused on me included, like the what's happening right now with adults and trying to focus on that, that actually the kids have been the blind spot and all this. So I think that's what leaves me with, I feel optimistic about recovery. It's possible. People need access to treatment, many types of treatment, not just six month recovery, but medication assisted treatment, all kinds of treatment. They need access to any type of treatment that works for them. But like, what are we doing for the kids? Right. That's my fear. Especially foster care crisis and, you know, McDowell County, 50% of the kids living with their grandparents and, you know, so many stats that you can just get bummed about. But it, but still, you know, you find those bits of inspiration throughout all this. Right. Like, you know, you just find that you can find good in about anyone. Right. You know, I haven't met really anyone that I couldn't find something that I didn't uh, appreciate. And people say, like, don't you get depressed with these topics and it's like, well, no, because if you're with people that are doing something, like what's there to get depressed about? There's someone getting up every day to try to make a difference. Like they may not be able to make a difference that day, but it's the accumulation that I think keeps me from getting like losing hope. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I would love to find someone that's doing for children what those women were doing for are still doing for people in, you know, recovery. Right. Last question. So what would you say to that kid in Southern West Virginia that just don't think that they live in the right area to be a storyteller? Like they think they need to move or they think that, you know, it's never possible for me. Just let me get my, you know, which, you know, your dad was a coal miner. Uh, I was a coal miner for nine years. I'm thankful for it. It allowed me to do what I need to do. But that person who just thinks that doing something like this isn't possible. Yeah. I would say it's more possible than ever. This is the best time to live if you want to be in media. It's a growing industry. I mean, look at what you're doing. You've completely changed your life and made a successful business, support your family. You're having fun. Like you're a great example right. of it. And it is a growing business. Everybody's story. Everybody's got a story to be told. And everyone needs that story told. And there are export experts. In the same way you go to the dentist when you need your teeth fixed, you go to a storyteller when you need your message, you know, portrayed, whether that's a ad or a documentary. But I do think it's interesting that we think because we grew up here that we could never be that. What's interesting about that is the fact that so many people drop in here to tell the stories, probably more than most regions of this country. So that to me says there's a lot of freaking stories here to tell. 
And who better to tell them than us? So like plenty of stories to tell. Choose the ones that really move you, that can really like you can sink your teeth in and really get behind. And it doesn't always have to be documentary. It could be comedy. It could be many things. We would need like a, we need many stories. We don't need 10 films about the opioid crisis. We need some love and some humor and some beauty and like find the things that really inspire you. Um, And I do think, there's some value in, you know, getting out of here and meeting people that do it differently than you and learning how to collaborate or um, going to one of these meetups in the industry. I mean, you got to know what's being made and who the people are making it in the industry in order to sort of like know where you'll fit into it. But I used to think that, you know, art was for people of a different class, state, background. Art wasn't for kids like myself. So I went to journalism because journalism seemed like a very practical thing. You know, everybody in my family was either a miner or a welder or, you know, pop all digs graves, um, black lung nurse, these types of things. And so journalism was a practical field to go into. And now I'm just now like feeling confident to be like, I can do more than that. And so take baby steps and you're not you're not disadvantaged because you grew up here. You actually have a great advantage to the stories that other people tell very poorly. Elaine, I can't thank you enough for your time, and I appreciate you and Curran more than I can describe. Your love for filmmaking not only inspired me to pick up a camera and quit my day job, it also taught me that the experience and relationships created during the process is the most important. You can watch Heroin and Recovery Boys streaming on Netflix now. And check out Elaine's work by visiting her Facebook page and her portfolio at elainemcmillionsheldon.com. Appalachia Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at appalachiastartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.